Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, glad you're with us. Happy Labor Day. It's the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. And since it's a holiday, uh, we're on vacation as well for the long weekend. And as a result of that, we are going back to your questions. We're going to look at some of the more intriguing questions that you sent us a while back that you would like us to answer here on the Three Martini Lunch. And I got to say, Jim, once again, very impressed with uh, listener questions. And uh, the next time we're thinking about being away, we'll probably put out another call for questions since we're getting a little bit low now. So if you're thinking of anything Send it along to us whenever you want, and uh, I'll archive those, and we'll we'll get to those as, as soon as possible. Just uh, send me a private message on Twitter at Dateline underscore DC. All right, Jim, first question today, and this is uh, prediction time, basically, for the midterm elections, not on control of the chambers or governorships or anything like that, but specifically, uh, which statewide candidates will most overperform and underperform the state's partisan lean, not necessarily win or lose, but just do a lot better or a lot worse than they're expected to based on what we traditionally think of that state. That question comes to us from Lucas Odom. Lucas, thank you for the question. Jim, which names come to mind, either positively or negatively there? Well, up until fairly recently, I might have nominated Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. Um, I don't want to rehash everything I've said about this race, but you know, out of all the candidates who are running uh, in that Pennsylvania Senate primary, McCormick, you could argue, was, quote unquote, the establishment guy, uh, you know, hedge fund guys, you know, extensive network of wealthy donors. He would have gone into this well funded. Uh, and then you had Barnett, who was the you know African-American woman who contended that she was the real Trump nationalist populist choice, even though Trump had endorsed Mehmet Oz. Oz, you know, celebrity, Oprah doctor, daytime television show. I really think kind of went into this without a natural constituency. No, no side of the Republican Party that automatically went with them. Trump endorsed him. And we've seen a little bit of tightening in the last couple of races. So I might drift away from him. Um, really, when you're looking at the kind of candidate who usually overperforms how they the party usually does in a state, you really should be looking at somebody like Charlie Baker in, in uh, Massachusetts, who's not running. He's had you know two terms up there, but he's run and won by comfortable margins uh, in an otherwise very democratic state. I think you know Larry Hogan qualifies. So on this, I might go Greg with one of our rare guests on this program, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Um, the Senate race looks like it's going to be tight, but I don't think the Republicans going to be. Um, doing gangbusters in that state, but Sununu looks like he's going to win and win quite comfortably. Um, so I think that, you know, you can usually find Republican governors in blue states that not only win, but win pretty darn, you know, well. Uh, and, and so by that measure, it, it should be a, a pretty good example of somebody who's overperforming. Um, I, I also might have in the past to put a J.D. Vance type, um, you know, somebody who, you know, DeWine is going to win by a wide margin. But actually, I think I'm feeling better about uh, J.D. Vance these last couple of weeks. So I think the guy who I'm most thinking about the, right now as a guy who looks like he's really in trouble is Blake Masters. Uh, now, with Carrie Lake as the gubernatorial candidate, I don't know how well the typical Arizona uh, Republican is going to do. But a lot of worrying signs about Blake Masters in terms of just overall appeal, ability to uh, you know win over independence, and fundraising, surprisingly, for a guy who was backed by Peter Thiel. So 
couple options there. Um, none of particularly, you know, all races Republicans really thought they wanted to at least be competitive in, if not, uh, uh, if not outright winners right now. Um, but we should point out that this is just getting into September and things could well change. No, that's absolutely right. And uh, I think we're going to overlap here in a number of uh, areas. I would point out, though, in uh, 2018, uh, Doug Ducey uh, won quite easily. He won by 15 points in the governor's race. And that's the same year Kirsten Cinema defeated Martha McSally in a much closer race. But there was quite a bit of crossover there. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen. Carrie Lake actually slightly ahead of uh, her Democratic opponent in the governor's race. So plenty to watch there. Arizona, definitely a bellwether state. uh, And you don't want to get swept there for sure. Uh, Jim, I'm going to go with uh, perhaps too easy of an answer, but I think Ron DeSantis is uh, going to do better than high single digits in beating Charlie Crist, at least at this point, partly because of the massive money difference that you chronicled recently. Was it like 130 million to one, literally? (laughs) Yeah, as of August 19th, that was the split. (laughs) So, I mean, after he wins the primary, I'm sure he'll get help. He'll get help from the Democratic Governors Association, the DNC and so forth. But he's just stepping on rake after rake, doesn't want the DeSantis votes, picks a hardcore teachers union figure who, you know, uh, demonized parents. I mean, this is just I mean, the, the DeSantis campaign had the ability to script the first week or two after Charlie Crist wins the primary. They couldn't have done it any better for their own side than this. So I think he's going to end up winning by by quite a bit, probably well into double figures. And if that happens, uh, that's going to give him a lot of momentum going into what appears to be a likely 2024 uh, presidential bid. So he's the one that really stands out to me. Uh, on the underperforming side, I'm going with the Peter Thiel Senate candidates. I'm not saying they're all going to lose because Lucas was very careful to point out his question, not necessarily lose, but just uh, underperform uh, given the state's bent. And so given where Ohio is right now, uh, anything relatively close uh, shows that, that Vance will be underperforming. But I think you're right that he is going to win. Uh, Oz is another uh, situation. And if Masters can't get it within at least a couple of points, uh, he will have significantly underperformed. On the Democratic side, you know, Everybody loves the retreads, but we saw this back in 2016 when the Democrats really thought they were going to win back Senate seats in Wisconsin and Indiana with Evan Bayh and Russ Feingold. Did not happen. Did not happen at all. And I think Beto uh, is going to do worse against Greg Abbott than he did against uh, Ted Cruz. And I think Stacey Abrams is going to lose by more than she did against Brian Kemp four years ago. So uh, on both sides of the aisle, I think we're going to see some uh, pretty significant underperforming. Greg, from your lips to the electorate's ears. <laughs> I'm usually the pessimist with these things, but I just feel like Beto and Stacey Abrams are yesterday's news. Uh, and you're not even hearing a ton of coverage about their campaigns with the same breathless liberal enthusiasm that you did four years ago. So hopefully there's a good reason for that. All right, Jim, uh, before we move on to our next question, we have a not only a great sponsor, a delicious sponsor, the Moink Box. Look, not only is their meat delicious from their steaks to their pork chops to the chicken to the fish, but they raise it the right way. Moink, delicious meat delivered to your doorstep, grown the right way. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. You choose the meat that gets delivered in every box, from ribeyes to chicken breasts to pork chops to salmon fillets and so much more. Plus, you can cancel anytime. Mrs. Carabas just made moink steaks last Friday. 
Man, coming home on the last day of the work week to that was amazing. Just delicious, tender, and it's not just the steaks. Everything you get from Moinkbox is fantastic. Keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash martini right now, and uh, you can get free filet mignon in every order for a year. How great is that? One year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. M-O-I-N-K box.com slash martini, moinkbox.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our second uh, question of the day for this special Labor Day edition. And uh, for folks who might remember this, it was a few weeks ago that we were giving qualified praise to the New York Times for having their op-ed writers and columnists write about something they were wrong about. And some of them actually were serious about it, and other ones were... I was wrong, but was I really like Paul Krugman and inflation? Yes, Paul, you were very wrong. Uh, There was another writer whose name is escaping me who apologized sort of for writing about Mitt Romney's dog constantly during the 2012 campaign. Gail Collins. (laughs) Gail Collins. Thank you. So here's the question. In the spirit of the New York Times editorial page, what was something you have been wrong on? Jim? So back in 2006, my first book was published voting to kill it is now available in fine remainder bins everywhere um you can still get it on that but it was basically arguing that 9 11 had i don't necessarily say permanently but for a long time had changed the dynamics of politics and national security and voters priorities and the subtitle which you don't hear me quote very often was how 9 11 launched the era of republican leadership and the publisher had really wanted to run how 9 11 launched the era of republican dominance And it was published two months before the 2006 elections, which, as you may recall, did not go well for Republicans. And one of many reasons it did not go well was because around 2006, Americans were really getting sick and tired of the Iraq war. More broadly, it wasn't just, you know, the fact that that title and all that stuff uh, made it sound like I was contending that the Republicans would win forever, which I really didn't say. But I did say that this was going to be a game changing and lasting dynamic. And I think it's safe to say that certainly by the 2008 elections, the Great Recession had overtaken Iraq and the war on terror on uh, American politics. I think you can debate how much it was a factor in uh, subsequent elections. Clearly, the way Obama fought the war on terror did not uh, cause much of a problem in 2012. And he was able to say accurately he'd ordered the uh, operation that killed bin Laden. I do think the rise of ISIS played a role in Donald Trump's election in 2016. I don't think I can plausibly argue that was the decisive factor, but I think it was in the mix. And I think just more broadly, um, whether or not you want to accuse me of being a neocon, I've always been... uh, Neocon curious, shall we say, neocon sympathetic. Um, and think back to the Bush era statements. I remember at the time thinking this was an, at minimum an exaggeration, but I think it's actually been more painfully refuted. Uh, George W. Bush used to say, I think it was in his second inaugural, freedom is the yearning of every human heart. And we could always say, well, not everybody, not every human heart. We, people who work for the KGB aren't yearning for freedom and uh, members of Al Qaeda, no, they, you know, and dictators, you know, but we could, we had this belief that, yeah, everybody wants to be free, but by and large, most populations want to be free. And I think if you look most painfully at our recent experience in Afghanistan, I think if you look at really the way most Russians don't seem all that bothered by the way Putin runs his country, um, there may be a certain, you know, healthy percentage of North Koreans who don't like living the way they do, but They certainly aren't necessarily willing to rise up and try to overthrow those oppressive regimes. 
And then there are other competing order. Yes, people want freedom, but they also want order. They also want stability. They also want prosperity. There are a lot of Chinese who may recognize that they don't really have true freedom. And that's the kind of freedom we have in America. But the Chinese government seems to be delivering prosperity and stability, and they can live pretty happily if they get to live a better lifestyle. And uh, there doesn't seem to be any chaos or crime or not, you know, not that much. They're willing to live with a regime that doesn't allow you to publicly criticize them. So I think that understanding of the world has proven to be erroneous. And I think some thinkers who I admire, and I still admire, tend to hand wave away these other concerns. The world is a little more complicated than it seemed during the era of the war on terror. And I'm not, while I don't agree with all of the rethinking that's going on in Republican foreign policy circles, I think it is necessary, probably a little overdue. And probably I looked at these issues a little too simplistic in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Tough one. Good reference on the George W. Bush second inaugural. There was some, uh, Serious Wilsonian uh, mm. vibes to that speech. And anytime you're reminding people of Woodrow Wilson, you're, you're not going in the right direction. I can Put down the it. drink, step away, <laughs> and just sit in the corner and contemplate for a few minutes. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, as for me, I'll go with a couple of uh, quick ones and then, then a deeper one. Jim, uh, you and I are both old enough to remember uh, the mid-1990s and the Republican Revolution. One of the things that everybody was really fired up about at that point was term limits. Now, in theory term limits seem like a good idea. You refresh it, people don't get lazy and boring and beholden to donors and lobbyists and all sorts of things. So you understood why it happened, right? But then, of course, people kept breaking those pledges. Some of those people paid for it. Some of those didn't. Some people, uh, you know, kept their word, like Tom Coburn, one of the I'd say one of the great legislators of the last quarter century or so. And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that, yes, incumbents have a huge advantage. They have a huge money advantage. They have a huge... Uh, name recognition advantage, what have you. But ultimately, the choice is in the hand of the voters. And if your congressman sucks, then it's up to you to replace them. It's not because, oh, they've been there for six years or eight years or 10 years or whatever it is. Uh, it's it's up to you. If you want somebody better, go hire somebody better. It's not just uh, there uh, for the system to make better for you. And in Michigan, in the state legislature, you have term limits of six years for the state house uh, or three terms two-year terms each, and then eight years or two four-year terms for the state Senate, which seemed like a good idea at the time. But basically what's happening is, is you got so much turnover now that you have people who have just been there for two or four years becoming committee chairman. Uh, you have people just barely learning how s the government works, uh, trying to make massive decisions and, and lead people on critical issues. Uh, and you essentially have a legislature of people in their 20s and 30s. There's some exceptions to that, of course, but uh, it's not exactly as uh, fresh and reinvigorating as people would have expected. Uh, the second one, and this one actually will be quick, uh, as I think both you and I would say uh, we were initially wrong about Bob McDonald, uh, the governor of Virginia, who was off to an awesome start. And then at the end, he had the ethics scandal. And as I always like to say, he raised my taxes when he promised he wouldn't. And that's always, always a, a, a no-go for Bob McDonald. But here's the one that I uh, have probably never really talked about on, on this podcast much. And that's that in the 2015-2016 presidential cycle, I was always skeptical of Donald Trump for a number of reasons. The biggest one was, though, because for the previous 20, 30, however many years, he never acted like a conservative. In fact, when he was flirting with a presidential bid, 
in around the 2000 election as an independent candidate or a foreign party candidate, uh, he talked about how he was strongly in favor of partial birth abortion. And so that just hung in my head and how he was, you know, very critical of, of conservatives. And I'm like, this guy is not going to govern as a conservative. But he did. He got into office, and in a lot of different ways he did. There are some other ways he didn't, which I know people will perhaps bring up in the comments today. But in terms of, of taxes, which is not a big surprise, he governed in a conservative way. He was probably the most successfully and effective pro-life president we've ever had, not just in a nomination of SCOTUS justices, but also in actual administration policy. Uh, he got us out of the Iran deal. Uh, and uh, he also led the way to perhaps the most significant progress on Middle Eastern policy in my lifetime, probably so, especially if they can keep going, uh, and that's the Abraham Accords. And so I would argue that if Trump had focused entirely or mostly on what he was accomplishing as president, he probably would have won re-election quite handily, even in the pandemic, which probably would have complicated it anyway, uh, would have made things a little dicier. But I think if his record had been uh, what was really on the line as opposed to his personality and his uh, penchant to constantly getting into Twitter fights and everything else, I think he probably would have won. And I think, uh, I don't know what his second term would have looked like. Most second terms have been rocky no matter who it is, but we would at least be free of what's happening right now from this administration. You know, Greg, the way you and I see the world uh, as a Venn diagram is two circles that largely, but not entirely overlap and I concur with a great deal of what you said there. And I think I just, you know, Donald Trump has been talked to death. I think the only thing I'll point out is that not only is hearing Democrats and Republicans argue about Donald Trump kind of exhausting and really unsatisfying and unedifying at this point, because Donald Trump has been at the center of our politics since about mid-2015, right? We're now in year seven of, you know, on any given day, the most common question is, well, what do you think of what Donald Trump said, you know? Also, I find the arguments between never Trump Republicans, and I guess you could characterize them as always Trump Republicans, as similarly exhausting in part because, you know, the, the, you know I did not vote for Trump. The morning of the, after the 2016 election, I really, you know, wow, we're not going to have Hillary Clinton. And I felt pretty good. <laughs> like, oh, oh, that's kind of nice. I like that. And the times when Donald Trump was doing something I thought was right, I gave him praise. Go look it up, folks. Um, the judicial nominations, the tax cuts, defense spending, uh, wiping um, uh, Soleimani off the face of the earth. There, there were a lot of good things that Trump did do. He also did a lot of bad things, a whole bunch of problems. And when I felt like he was being criticized unfairly, I defended him. But also when I felt like he was being criticized fairly, I added to that criticism. Um, I don't feel like you, you know, every, the argument is always, you know, binary choice. And not only did I not see the, you know, typical elections as that, I also feel like how you treat a president is not a binary choice. And I think this should go for all presidents. When the president you voted for does something good, great. When he does something you don't like, point it out, say so. You're not obligated to always agree with what somebody does. And, you know, it has been frustrating that, um, we can't. I, I got into you know some argument with somebody who are, accused me of being a lockstep Trump supporter, which I don't think is a fair characterization by any you know uh, any stretch of the imagination. I said to him, "So what, how have I been a lockstep Trump supporter?" And he said, "Because you criticize the Democrats all the time." I was like, "Okay, that's not the same thing." And I guess this guy genuinely believed that if you criticize Democrats, 
you were a Trump. You had to be a Trump supporter. That was that was, you know, I'm sorry. Sometimes a story doesn't have a heroic figure. Sometimes you have two bad options. And yeah, sometimes you can choose you know, the lesser of those two evils or you can vote for the libertarians. You can vote right in somebody. You can do something else. Your vote has to be earned. Don't let anyone tell you you're obligated to vote for somebody else. You trust your own conscience. You know what you're doing. God put you on this earth to make your own decisions, not to be, you know, some automaton who takes orders from somebody else. Boy, we went kind of a far afield on this question. <laughs> yeah, we're we're getting deep now on this yeah. one, but uh, but yeah, so uh, a pleasant surprise on a number of issues. Obviously, the drama on a number of other issues, uh, you know, kind of made for an exhausting stretch as well. Um, despite the fact that I, I think he accomplished quite a bit, does not mean uh, an endorsement for twenty twenty four. I think it's. Probably better to turn the page. I'm excited about what uh, Ron DeSantis might bring to the table. Let's get him across the finish line of the governor's race first. Uh, and I think a, a younger person who doesn't have such a built-in negative voter base against him would probably be a better chance for Republicans in 2024 because we still don't know what the Democrats are going to do. Don't assume that it's going to be Biden, even though he's, I think, officially filed for re-election. But that can always change. So, uh, by the way, that question was from Cal from Ohio. So, Cal, thanks for the question. All right, Jim, on to our final question on this Labor Day special. And for this one, we turn to sports, but it's not about the Bears and the Jets, but it is about football. Uh, It's from Christopher Athari, who I think was uh, asking a question earlier, but he asked uh, a number of them. And so, Christopher, you're doing a good job asking questions. How would you handle college football realignment? Or are you a communist and not care about the true great American game. Well, I love college football, Jim. And uh, for those who don't follow what's happening in college football right now, uh, there's a lot of money on the table. Uh, you got uh, you know players finally being able to sign uh, licensing deals where they can make money off their names and their images and likenesses and so forth. But you also have conferences constantly shifting and realigning. So the Big Ten has 14 and is uh, headed to 16 including uh, UCLA and USC, if that holds up. Uh, the Big 12 was at 10. I don't I don't remember if they've added another. I think they're about to add some more. The SEC is about to grow again. So, I mean, it's, it's like you're heading towards super conferences. So, Jim, based on what we're seeing with the players and, and all sorts of different issues with the conferences, what do you like? What do you not like? Well, my first observation, Greg, is that when people say that American higher education is in decline and we're not preparing our students for the world, I think we can point to one of the problems being that colleges cannot agree how many teams belong in a conference <laughs> called the Big Ten or the Big 12. You'd, you'd think it'd be right there in the title. Um, so I, I, I did not go to a school at a particularly good college football program, so I did not develop that uh, instinctive natural taste. And you can insert the joke here about being a Jets fan. I only pay attention to college football for who the Jets are going to draft. Um, But I'd say year by year, I've gotten more into it. I have found myself on Saturday night starting to watch it. Uh, A bunch of my friends have loyalties to the traditional powerhouses, uh, Michigan, Penn State, Florida State, stuff like that. So I I do get into it. And I do think um, that a great deal of much needed change is coming to college football. Look, Major League Baseball has the minor leagues. Um, College basketball used to be kind of the minor leagues for the NBA. And now the NBA has de- has created its own developmental leagues. But the NFL always kind of got off easy because they had college football operating as the effective minor leagues for the National Football League. And I don't think there's any, you know, when you see the annual NFL draft come out, every year there's a whole bunch of players from Alabama. Every year there's a whole bunch of players from the usual top 10, 20, 30 powerhouse teams. 
Um, and I used to, at one point, for a long time, I used to hate the idea of paying college players. By golly, these guys are getting scholarships. If they don't go to school, they don't appreciate it. But, you know, they're, they're, they're wasting this great gift that they're being given, et cetera, et cetera. And look, the effort that it takes to become a professional NFL player is an enormous amount of effort. Um, these kids have to work as hard as you work to get through your degree, to pass that chemistry class, et cetera. So yeah, I don't like them taking basket weaving or, or other, you know, very basic show up and you get an A kind of classes. But I do think there's a um, certain amount of, of logic to saying, look, what do these guys want to do with their lives? They want to be professional football players. It's not surprising that most of their time, most of their energy, most of their effort goes towards preparing to be a professional football player. And I think what really, you know, changed my thinking on this is if you go and look at a really big football game, uh, you know, Michigan, Ohio State, right? Or, or almost, you know, uh, LSU, almost any SEC game, you look at the stadiums, you look at the capacity, right? You look at the luxury boxes, you look at the TV cameras, you look at um, the, the people tailgating, you look, everything around the stadium is the same as you would find at an NFL stadium, right? The advertising rates are roughly the same. The ticket rates are about the same. The cost of a luxury box is about the same. Every Money-wise, everything is the same, except none of it goes to the players on the field. And that's, I thought about that and I was like, that's not right because they're all coming to see the players on the field. They're not coming to see the referees. They're not coming to see the university athletic directors. The head coaches can sometimes uh, be an aspect of a team's appeal, but in the end, like people don't pay to watch the, you know, they watch to pay the players and the players were the only ones who were making no money. So when people say, oh, you know, all of this new, the fact that players can make money on their, their likenesses and stuff. Hey, you know what? Good for them. I, I have come to the conclusion that if you play football well enough to be a star for people to want to buy your Jersey, for people to really into be a fan of you, I see no problem with you financially profiting from this consequence of your hard work. And you know what? God forbid the guy, you know, first of all, God forbid any of these players twist, you know, twist and get an ACL or, or do something where they, you know, they're just not going to play again. At least they have a chance to make some money off their ability to play football while they still can. The idea, you know, every year there was like one or two players, a college senior comes back, comes back for senior year. He could have come out for the draft plays football, has some terrible injury, and then instead of getting drafted in the first or second round, he's in the you know, fifth, sixth, seventh round and ends up having much less uh, earnings over the course of his career. My craziest idea is to actually take, and it's not work completely workable, but something along these lines of saying, look, if college, if college football has effectively turned into the NFL's minor league, well, then let's formalize it. Let's get it out of the higher education business. Let's, let's not pretend that this is just a bunch of amateurs um, and let's basically pick 32 teams or maybe pick 64, right? Pick give them two. And each one of them becomes a minor league team of the NFL and they eventually becomes a developmental league. So every big time college football program would have some partner in the NFL. And I don't know whether you'd change the way the NFL draft works or something like that. But the idea is the NFL would have a investment in this program that functions as their minor league. So as, as for the alignment of the conferences, um, I used to joke about way back in college basketball when the Atlantic 10 had a bunch of schools that were nowhere near the Atlantic Ocean. Um, so I know geography's out and I know the numbers are out. Uh, so maybe you should just come up with other uh, names besides geography and some numbers to signify these, these conferences. Um, different branding or something like that. Yes, I know there's a great deal of... Uh, 
tradition to the Big Ten or to uh, the SEC, the ACC, stuff like that. But I think in the end, um, it is turning into a kind of a wild farce. And, uh, you know, what I was really bad is it's, it's almost like what you're seeing in the Saudi Arabian effort to create a, a rival golf tour. You have a lot of money in the system, but somebody convinces certain players within that system. Ooh, if we change things, we could get even more money. And I think it risks the entire uh, long-term health of the sport. So I don't like any of this crazy, you know, uh, uh, reshuffling of conferences. I don't think it makes any sense for uh, USC and UCLA to be playing a bunch of teams in the Midwest. This isn't the NFL. Allegedly, these guys are going to college, going to classes. One more reason why this doesn't seem like a really functional system. I realize I'm rather powerless against this. And chances are whoever the Jets draft will end up getting injured anyway. I think this is just Jim's way of getting a pipeline from Alabama to the New York Jets. But uh, the guys we draft from Alabama keep getting injured. (laughs) He Milner, right? He had like five surgeries in college. He was half robot by the time they got to him. (laughs) He couldn't go through a metal detector. Well, I am very much a traditionalist when it comes to college football. I absolutely love college football. I think the intensity, the passion, the atmosphere, the rivalries, pretty much uh, impossible to meet. Watching just how liberal and woke campuses are getting makes it in some ways in the back of my mind a little bit harder to get excited about the games unless of course you're cheering for hillsdale at the division two level which is of course my alma mater uh and then you can uh cheer for them with a clear conscience but when it comes to uh conferences i love the old traditional alignment i don't even want to get i want to go back to the southwest conference so you have texas and texas a&m and arkansas and smu and all those uh players there they go to the Cotton Bowl, their conference champion. Big 10, Pac-10 still go to the Rose Bowl. Uh, Big 12 goes to the uh, Orange Bowl. And on and on and on it goes. And then uh, I would use the, all those traditional bowl alignments to be the, the original round for the college football playoffs. And then you have them seated in some particular fashion. And then those bowl games get to host the next rounds. Even more money. I think that would work great. I agree with you totally on uh, the NIL situation. I think the players, uh, since the colleges are making boatloads of money off of these players uh, do have the right to uh, make some money off of this. I remember a story from Mitch Albman, the Detroit Free Press, where uh, he was walking down the street with Chris Webber back when he was playing with the Fab Five. That's basketball, obviously. But, uh, you know, Chris Webber had to bum five or ten bucks off of Mitch Albman to buy lunch, but they were were going by a a store that had a bunch of Chris Webber jerseys in the window and he didn't get anything for it. So, uh, absolutely, they should be getting a cut of that. What I don't love is the portals where all these players, if they are not a starter right away or they get into a beef with the coach, all of a sudden they can transfer. They don't even have to sit out a year most of the time anymore. And it's just this constant chaos of essentially college football free agency. And it's just, uh, I mean, it's like Jerry Seinfeld says, you got so many people uh, changing teams now, you're just cheering for laundry. You're cheering for shirts. It's not even a matter of who's been loyal to your program for the past uh, few years here. Finally, I don't like the idea of stockpiling these conferences for the reasons I mentioned before, but if you're going to do it, I think your entire schedule should be in your conference. No more. If you got 15 other teams in your conference, you shouldn't get four games at the top playing the Little Sisters of the Poor or East Podunk State. You got to play the teams in your conference. If maybe once in a while you slip in a non-conference game against another powerhouse, maybe in the first week of the season like we just saw this weekend, I would be amenable to that. But uh, this this idea of uh, paying off these uh, much smaller schools to get thrashed in the first couple of weeks of the season so you can get your tune-up games in. No, 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 no. If you're going to build up these conferences to this level, play your conference, and then we'll see who's really the best. All right, Jim, that's all I got. So happy Labor Day to you, and uh, we'll see you again tomorrow. Remember, everybody should celebrate Labor Day by not working. 
Yes, that's exactly right. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. If you don't already, tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, remember to uh, get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Remember Jim's new novel, Gathering Five Storms, the short story, Saving the Devil. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great rest of your Labor Day and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. California Congressman Daryl Issa joins me to stress how many lives are being destroyed by the fentanyl pouring across our border. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Issa also explains how China is killing Americans with fentanyl and making tons of money in the process. I'll also share how Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz told the plain truth about Biden's dereliction of duty at the border. Don't miss it. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.